Welcome to Rebuilding. This podcast is designed to help the church rebuild its walls one person at a time. For more information, check us out at www.piercepoint.org. Let's get, start, get started. We're going to be in Psalm 139 this morning. So Psalm 139, and I'm going to jump right in because my two hours starts right now. <clears throat> and, uh, <clears throat> I'm going to read the first four verses of it, and then we're going to chat about it, and then we'll move on from there. Psalm 139, it's a psalm of David, says this, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thoughts from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, Oh, Lord, you know it all. A.W. Tozer said, I think that most Christians would be better pleased if the Lord did not inquire into their personal affairs so closely. He said they want him to save them, uh, keep them happy, take them to heaven at the end, but not be too inquisitive about their conduct or their service. I agree with A.W. Tozer. Verse number one says that David served a God that knew him. According to verse two, and I'm going to jump around just a little bit back there, Amanda. God knew some very mundane details of of David's life. He says, "You you know when I sit down and when I rise up. Now, God knew every move that David made. That would be enough to unnerve most people, but it goes much deeper than than that. Uh, David says that God knew the intricate details of his life. He said, you understand my thoughts from afar. He, He not only knows your thoughts, he understands your thoughts. That's saying a lot with some of us, that God understands our thoughts. God knows our thought. Can that be true? It certainly is true. He knows our thoughts. Hebrews 4.13 says, that there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. God can even discern your thoughts. He knows what you're thinking right now. He knows whether you're agreeing, whether you're disagreeing, whether you're ignoring, daydreaming. He knows whether you can't wait till the service is over. Or he knows those that are hoping that I go ahead and preach for two hours, like I said I would, right? Nobody's thinking that, are they? God knows your thoughts. Verse 3 says, you scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. The term scrutinize is literally translated winnow. W-I-N-N-O-W, winnow. Now, if you're not a farmer and you don't know anything about winnowing wheat, then you, you, you may not gra- uh, grasp exactly what that means. This, this is a, uh, we've talked about this before, the process of the old time process of winnowing wheat that, that the ancient Hebrews would have used. This involved removing the grain or the good portion of the wheat from the straw husk by beating it on the floor manually. Then the sheaves of wheat 
were laid on the threshing floor and they would have cattle come in and walk over all of these sheaves of wheat so that it, uh, it would loosen the edible grain from the inedible chaff that surrounds the wheat. Now, then the winnowing was done. So the winnowing was a pretty interesting process. It, it, they used a winnowing fork, it's called. And they would go down and they would scoop up this, all the mixture, the, the chaff and the wheat, and they would throw it up into the air. And when they threw it up into the air, the chaff would be blown away and the good wheat would fall to the floor, winnowing. That process was a, a, a detailed thing that they had to step-by-step step do that. David says that every tiny detail that you have scrutinized my thoughts, like your winnowing wheat, Lord, this, this, this process was what David envisioned when he said that God was winnowing his path. God was taking the things in David's life that were considered worthless and getting rid of it. David said that God was intimately acquainted with all of his ways. Is God intimately acquainted with all of your ways? Verse number four says, even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. Jesus said that what we say with our mouths is the result of what's in our heart. The fact that God knows the words we're about to speak should cause us to think carefully about our speech and our thoughts. Our words should be wholesome, helpful, edifying. Colossians 4, 6 says, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. I find it very interesting that while David knew that God was aware of his comings and goings, his rising and his sittings, even his very thoughts, he didn't seem to be concerned about that. He wasn't freaked out by the fact that God knows every move we make. He knows every thought we have, even if we never speak it to anyone. But God still knows it. Does it bother you that your every move, your every word, your every thought is known by God? Even if no one on this earth, no one else on this earth knows any of this, it can't be hidden from God. Does this bother you? There are numerous scriptures that prove what David is saying. David actually taught this truth to his son Solomon. In 1 Chronicles 28, David gathers all of, of his uh, leaders and uh, officials of Israel to let them know that God has told him that he would not be the one, he, David, would not be the one to build the, to build the temple of God, that it would be his son Solomon. During this speech that David gives, he turns and addresses his son Solomon. Listen to what he says in 1 Chronicles 28, 9, starting at the, the last section of verse 9. He said, as for you, my son, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. Now, that, that's enough right there. He said, for the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. 
David certainly wanted Solomon to know the, the, the truth that God was the one that searches the hearts and understands every intent of our thoughts. Did Solomon get that message? Look at what Solomon says. Approximately 11 years later, David has been dead for at least 10 years, and Solomon is dedicating the completed temple. Solomon is praying to God that he continue to take care of the people uh, and, and that and he sheltered them against all kinds of trouble, f- famine, wars, enemies, plagues, all that. But listen to this piece of this, pl- this prayer in 1 Kings 8, 838. Whatever prayer or supplication is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and spreading his hands toward this house, Then here in heaven, he says, your dwelling place, and forgive, and act, and render to each according to all his ways, whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men. Solomon certainly got that message that God knows every word that comes to your mind, whether you speak it or not. He knows the intent of every heart. He sees all your deeds, whether they're good or evil. Does that bother you? It bothered me greatly. If you are not willing and following God, and and if you're going your own way, this knowledge can be terrifying. But I want you to grasp a beautiful understanding that comes with this truth. This is a lesson that was lost on me for many years, for some time. I was one of those people who was a bit freaked out when I realized that God knew and saw and heard my every word, thought, and deed. I was unnerved by that. Why did it bother me so much? It's actually simple. If my actions and my words and my thoughts and my deeds, even the intent of my heart, are submitted to God and His ways, then there is less reason to be concerned. And that's true for you as well. But if we don't submit ourselves to God, we should be concerned. There are many things about this life that only make sense in the light of submitting ourselves to God. And that is your every thought, your every word, your every deed, even the things that are on your mind, submit to God. There's a a very simple truth that seems easy to understand, but it gets lost when we don't submit ourselves to God. And I've I've told many of you before. I'm sometimes I'm slow on the uptake, and some some of the easiest stuff just right over my head. Sometimes I lived this truth for quite a while, so I'm somewhat of an expert at it. I call it the beating your head against the wall syndrome the beating your head against the wall syndrome. Have you ever been dealing with something that seems to be going nowhere? Have you ever been dealing with somebody that the thing's just going no place? As hard as you try to get things resolved, it just seems like that you're beating your head against a wall. It's painful, but you just keep doing it. After much head beating, 
you come to a revelation. The light bulb goes off, and you get this awesome kind of an aha moment. You realize, now I was slow, it took me a long time to realize this, so, so get this, this is profound. You realize that it is going to feel so good when you stop beating your head against the wall. Took me a long time. Slow on the uptake. Barney, what are you talking about? It is a fact that God knows you and all your actions, all your thoughts, every word, every intention of your heart. He does not miss a thing. Once you fully grasp that and say, Father, I want to live according to your word. I want to see this world in the light of your truth. I want to follow what Jesus said. Once you do that and you mean it with all your being, with everything in you, you hear the gospel of Christ and you, you submit yourselves to God. And that's every piece of you, every piece of you. Something amazing begins to happen. You begin to change. It may take you some time to convince others of the transformation of your heart, but you are certain that God has made a change in you. You can be sure because you've heard the gospel of Christ, trusted God. It is certain that you knew what kind of person you were, and now you're changed. And you know it. You know it. But rest assured, God also knows it. He knows your heart. He knows if you've truly changed. He knows what's on your mind, what's in your heart, the intent, the intent of your thoughts. He knows if you are serious and living to follow what he has said. You know it, but God also knows it. You know your heart. You know you could not have changed your heart on your own. That is certain. And that can become a comforting truth. Even in the midst of chaos, you can trust that God will fulfill his part. And if you are following him with all that is in you, he knows it. Think about that. If you're doing everything that God wants you to do, every, the, any, as best you understand it, God knows it. God knows it. You don't have to be freaked out or fear that he sees and knows everything about you. Solomon said in Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 8, these are, these are scripture that we've all heard, we've all quoted. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own under, understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Everybody recalls those two verses. But the next two are just as powerful, just as powerful. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones, Mark. Thank God we can be certain of the change that God has made. It's not just life, but it's life abundant. If you know Jesus, he said, I'll give you life and I'll give it to you more abundantly. David continues in verse 5. He said, You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. This idea of God 
enclosing us both behind and before comes from the Hebrew word tsur. Tsur has a T-S-U-W-R, tsur, which is often used to describe a military fortification. To the ancient Hebrews, this would have uh, represented a strong rock wall or a fortress of some kind. David says that God had enclosed him behind and before, in front of him and behind him. In this context, this wording would have been used to suggest that, that you're guarding a valuable object. David knew that God was the protector of his people. When David says that God has laid his hand upon him, it wasn't like my dad used to do to me, laid his hand on me, just snatched me up. He's referring to an Old, Old Testament practice of bestowing a blessing on someone. A wise father would place his hands on his children and speak words into their lives about who they are and what they will be, what their place in the family means, what their future will be. This was one of the most important acts in Hebrew families. God's hand was a source of protection and blessing for his people. And that's still true today. The hand, the hand of God that brings judgment to the wicked brings grace and comfort to his children. That should give you grace and comfort. That should comfort your heart. David continues on in verse 6. He says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. Let's look for a minute at what knowledge that David is talking about. It's important. It's important for us to understand. David is not saying, he is not saying that knowledge of God is too wonderful for him, that it is too high and he cannot, cannot attain it. Look at the words. He says, such knowledge. What such knowledge is David, is David talking about? It's important that we define what he means here. Many people say, I don't read the Bible. It's just too hard to understand. They see a verse like this, and they say, even David didn't quite understand everything about God. Take a minute to look at what David has been describing about God up to this point, those Scripture verses that we've just read. In the first four verses of this psalm, David has described the omniscience of God. This is a, that's a big word just to, just that describes that God has total knowledge. He knows everything. He is the God who knows. In verse 5, David describes a God that is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. The next four verses, uh, uh, 7, 8, and 9, and 10, that we're going to get into, David will describe a God that is omnipresent, meaning that he is present everywhere at all times. Remember that God has promised he'll never leave you or forsake you, omnipresent. This is the knowledge. Those, those attributes of God are what David is talking about when he said, that knowledge of God is too high for me. I can't attain it. None of us can grasp deeply the attributes of God. I don't know how God is everywhere at the same time in the same place. I don't know how he knows what you are thinking, John, and what I'm thinking at the same time. I don't know how he does that. I know that he does. 
This is knowledge of God that's too high for David or for us to attain. They're definitely beyond human comprehension. But that does not mean, that does not mean that you cannot know God. You cannot know about God. Or that the Bible is a mystery that is meant for it is not meant for us to understand. That's not true. Listen to what Paul told the church at Colossae about the mystery of God. You hear people talk about the scriptures and they'll say, even the Bible says it's a mystery that no one can understand. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians 2, 1 through 3. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have had on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea. And for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery. That is, get this, the true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You can know about God. It's in Christ. Paul says the mystery of God is in Jesus. Even the mystery of God's will was consummated in, 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 in uh, Jesus. Back to the psalm. In verses 7 through 10, David is relaying the amazing truth that God is omnipresent. He's everywhere all at the same time. If we read this thinking that David is trying to get away from God, we may lose some of its beautiful truth. I'm going to show you in just a minute that David is pointing out that these truths are a source of comfort to him. Listen to the words. Verse number seven, where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, the grave, the place of the dead, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. And the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. Does this sound like a man who's trying to get away from God? I don't think so. Look back at verse 10. He says, even there, your hand will lead me. Your right hand will lay hold of me. The King James and the ESV give a more precise translation of this verse. Uh, it says, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. David is comforted by the fact that God will hold him in his hand. Then he says in verse 11, that even if the light around him becomes darkness and surrounds him, darkness does not survive in the presence of God. In 1 John 1, we are told that God is light. And in him, there's no darkness at all. Jesus said he was the light of the world. And if we follow him, guess what we won't do? We won't walk in darkness anymore. David has been pondered. Thank you for the amen. 
David has been pondering the fact that God knows him. God knows his rising up, his sitting down. God knows his every action, his every word, his every thought. It makes sense that David would contemplate the fact that God knew him before he was ever born. David addresses the amazing miracle of his conception and formation and birth, starting at verse 13. Listen to what he says. For you formed me, you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. The depths of the earth would be an ancient Hebrew metaphor for the deepest concealment of being in the womb, hidden in the womb. Verse number 16, your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. The late Ravi Zacharias said that the signature of God is on our soul. In A.D. 399, St. Augustine said, he said, People travel to wonder at the height of mountains, at the huge waves of the sea, at the long courses of the river, the vast com uh, compass of the ocean, at the circular motion of the stars, and they pass by themselves without wondering. Do you ever think about the human body and the wonder of God who made you? Augustine was saying we look at the grandeur of nature, the breathtaking beauty of the night skies, and forget the intricate wonder that God has brought about in the human body. It's amazing. I, I, can I geek out with you for just a second? You geeks will, will get this, I, and I loved it. I, I, I Consider a, the single, now get this, Consider the single fertilized cell of a newly conceived human life. From that one cell within the womb develop all of the different kinds of tissues, organs, systems, everything that keeps your body alive and walking around. All working together just at the right time in an amazingly coordinated process. There's no Big Bang Theory can do that. That's crazy. It would take way more faith to believe that. An example of this, now hear me on this, we, uh, this, this, this just amazes me. An example of that God doing everything in the right time when it comes to our body, which was dirt. It started off as dirt. An example is the hole in the septum of the heart between the two ventricles in the heart of a newborn infant. This hole closes up at exactly the right time during the birth process to allow for the oxygenation of the blood from the lungs instead of from the, from the umbilical cord. Isn't that amazing? As a baby's being born, God is closing up this, this hole that allows that baby to breathe air and get its oxygen through its lungs instead of from its mother. Isn't that amazing? We are fearfully and wonderfully made. David seems to have a pretty good grasp on the details of a child being, being formed in the womb. Technology has advanced so much from David's lifetime that we should be even more in awe 
of the way that God has brought us into this world. We have the ability now, with sonograms and the like, to actually see inside the womb and get a picture of the unborn child. That's amazing, isn't it? We are truly, fearfully, and wonderfully made. All of this understanding of the wonder of God makes the next couple of verses even more astonishing. Verse number 17, listen to what David says. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Now there are two ways that that verse, verse number 17 can be read. Some translate this, now hear me, Some translate this to read that God's thoughts are precious to David. Others translate it that God's thoughts concerning David are precious to him. In the context of this psalm, either would not be incorrect. Both are correct, actually, and I'm going to show you that. In our reading of the psalm, we see that this is a very intimate psalm between King David and God. So it's clear that David was in awe of the fact that God had thoughts toward him. It's inconceivable to the human mind that our Creator would have innumerable and deep thoughts about us. His creation, but it's true. God certainly has thoughts about us. David says in verse 18, if I should count them, the thoughts concerning him, they would outnumber the sand When I awake, I am still with you. David is saying that when he awakes from sleep, he is still with God. David is meditating on God and his attributes during the night and during his waking hours as well. Are you aware that God's presence in in our lives is never interrupted? Do you know that? I say that and I, I, I think, wow, God is always there. He's always there. His presence in your life, if you know him, is never interrupted. His presence in your life, if you don't know him, he still knows. He's with us all times. His love is never failing. The apostle Paul said that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. He wrote in Romans 8, 39, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That should comfort your heart. That should comfort your heart. This idea of God having thoughts about His creation can be foreign to us if we don't remind ourselves that what God has done for us. Now, when I say what God has done for us, everyone who has been a Christian for any length of time should have their own story of how God has brought you through many things. You should, ha- you should be able to tell your story about what God has done for you. These personal stories of God's love and care are a treasure that need to be told. You will uplift somebody. You will encourage somebody. But when I say that we need to remind ourselves what God has done for us, we have some clear documentation of His love and care. If we name the name of Christ and He is our, and he is our Savior, every single one of us has clear documentation 
that's found in Scripture in God's Word of what He has done for us. Allow me just to name just a few that are all backed up by Scripture. God breathed the breath of life into into His creation. He knit you together in your mother's womb. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. That's what God did for you. God has crowned you with glory and honor if you know him. But what did God's creation do when they knew all that? We exchanged the truth of God for a lie. We served the creation rather than the creator. We sinned and fell short of his glory. We were spiritually dead. We became children of wrath. We lived as enemies of God. But what were God's thoughts toward us then? He sent his son so that we wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. In God's great love, Jesus died for us. And oh, by the way, that was while we were still sinners. The Father made a way for us to become righteous. That's his thoughts toward us. He made us a new creation so sin would no longer be our master. That's his thoughts toward us. He freed us from the slavery of sin. That's his thoughts toward us. He took away the condemnation of sin. That's his thoughts toward you and I. Do we need more examples of God's thoughts toward us? Well, I've got more. My two hours isn't up yet. He justified us by grace through faith. God will never allow us to be snatched from his hand. That's his thoughts toward us. He adopted us into his family. He gave us the Holy Spirit as a helper. That's his thoughts toward us. He made us children of light. He gives us a glorious future. For heaven's sakes, that's God's thoughts toward us. If you ever wonder what God's innumerable thoughts are towards you, look at his word. Read it. Study it. Ask God to make it come alive in you. I've got to get back to the psalm. My time is almost up. David seems to take a drastic shift in the next few verses, and, and he goes from the wondrous works of God and God's care for his people to hatred of the wicked. So we're going we're gonna to spend just a couple of minutes on this. Verse 19, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed, for they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. I want you to get this right. I want to, I want to, I want to explain this, and I want you uh, to, to hear this. David is not saying that he has malicious feelings towards others. Here, he is confessing that he is grieved at sin first and its consequences. He hates them in the sense that he deplores their wickedness. Now, this, there's a saying going around, oh, you, you, you hate the sin, but you love the sinner. There is truth in that, but that's not in the Scripture. This is not a reflection of personal hatred. 
It is a matter of a principled conviction towards sin. There is a problem that can come up when we get into the idea of hating those men of bloodshed that David talks about who speak wickedly of God and rise up against him. First, we are clearly instructed by, by Jesus in Matthew 5, 44, to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. In Matthew 19, 19, Jesus told the rich young ruler to love his neighbor. Then in John 13, 34, we are instructed to love one another. We find this wording that David uses hard to process because we know from Scripture that hatred is not appropriate for the people of God. We are called to love. We are called to love. Let's first understand, and this is what I want you to hear. First of all, God is God and we are not. God has the right to do many things that you and I do not have the right to do. God is the judge of the wicked. We are not. God has the say on the final destination of the soul. We do not. We must understand that God is God and we are not. Back to King David. We know from Romans 13 that kings and rulers have an authority that is not shared with others. We've talked about that a lot here in the last, the subjection to the authority of, of our governing uh, uh, authorities. We've talked about that a lot lately. That authority is granted by God according to the Scripture. Paul said in Romans 13, 3 and 4, now listen to what Paul says. I'm, I'm, this is still about what David said about the hatred of, of sin. Paul says in Romans 13, 3 and 4, for rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Well, that makes sense, Paul. Do you want to have no fear of, a, no fear of authority? Then do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. That makes sense too, Paul. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword. The authority does not bear the sword for, for, for nothing. It is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on one who practices evil. That's the New Testament. That's Paul. What this says is that kings do not bear the sword in vain. They bear it for a purpose, and that purpose is to punish evil and protect good. Now, let's first look at this in the correct context. David was a human like you and I, and I'm, I'm closing up here just in a second. David was a human just like you and I. David was at that time the authority figure of that day. David was the king of Israel. The king of that day and the authority figures also in our day are allowed to use lethal force under certain circumstances. Much of what David says in verses 19, 19 through 22, he is speaking as the authority against evildoers, as the king of Israel. Note here that David is not asking God to allow him to enact vengeance on the evildoers. He's leaving that to God. He's leaving that up to God. That's very important that you understand that. David isn't saying, let me go kill them, Lord. These wicked evildoers were against God. They were men of bloodshed. They had spoken wickedly against God, David said. They had taken God's name in vain. They hated God, David said. 
They had risen up against God. David was the sword many times in the scripture. He was the authority, the sword, the king, the king of Israel. When the king wanted something, it got done. It is right that, it, it, is it right that God has given that authority to mere men? God is God and we are not. We have all heard the stories of David. God had chosen David to lead his people. While David was the king, chosen by God at that time, David was a man. He was an imperfect man. He was not perfect. What was it that God saw in David that would make him choose him and make his descendant, Jesus, the eternal king? We've talked about David's own sin many times. Uh, we've re- relayed that he, w- he had done some, so, some horrible sin. For David to be able to proclaim that he hated those that rose up against the Lord, he also had to make this plea. Verse 23, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. You and I should also cry out to God with these same words and with this same heart. The fact that God knows everything about us should humble us, but it should also comfort us. You see, we have a major advantage over what David knew when he wrote this. We have the full revelation of God's plan. The fact that God knows should bring us peace because we, we have the rest of the story. God truly knows. He loves you.